The annual scientific meeting of the NHS Scotland Mental Health Research Network takes place on the 30th of October in Glasgow and people can attend in person, uh, sign up details below and they can attend online and follow the discussions remotely. So in the kind of run up to this, we've produced a series of podcasts to preview some of the content that will be discussed at the meeting. But please do check out the programme, which is very varied and I'm sure there's something for everyone in there. So, so please do follow the hashtag and look out for the podcasts that appear in a run up to the event. So it's, it's a great pleasure to, to meet you, Bryn. Thanks so much for agreeing to take part in one of these podcasts. Would you like to just introduce yourself in your own words on the and the topic that we'll be talking about today? Yeah, hi Douglas. It's nice to be part of this meeting and the podcast today. So I'm Bryn Lloyd Evans. I'm a professor of mental health and social inclusion in the Division of Psychiatry at University College London. Um, and I started my working life as a mental health social worker, and I've brought into my academic career and interest in the social determinants of mental health and social interventions in mental health. And I spend quite a lot of my time on studies involved around that. Um, and in, especially in our research group here at UCL in the last five or six years, we've really developed a big interest in loneliness and the relationship between that and mental health. And they're doing quite a bit of work. there. Mm. So, so how has this come about, this interest in loneliness, this focus on loneliness, which I guess is I don't know, my impression is it's a relatively recent sort of thing as a specific focus. Um, where does that come from? How do we? How does loneliness affect people's mental health and uh, how has how that given rise to, the, to your focus? Yeah, so we're not alone in, in being increasingly interested in loneliness generally and its relationship to mental health. So it's there's a, a minister for loneliness now, isn't there, in the campaign to end loneliness and so on. It's increasingly in the public consciousness, I think. But I think we're getting increasingly aware and an increasingly strong evidence base that loneliness is linked to sort of mental health outcomes. So there's certainly most research has looked at the relationship between loneliness and depression. And we really know quite clearly, I think now from a number of studies, that if you're lonely, you're at greater risk of becoming depressed. And if you're already depressed, if you're also lonely, then your chances of a full and speedy recovery are less good than if you're not lonely. Um, so that's really clear for depression. There's slightly less evidence for other mental health conditions, but what there is also seems to show this link between illness severity and being lonely. So being lonely is, is not great news for your mental health across a range of conditions, including severe mental illnesses like psychosis and bipolar disorder. And I think why it's exciting in mental health is because it's a, a completely new kind of target for intervention that's different from targeting specific symptoms like most clinical interventions would. So it really gives us a a whole new avenue about ways we might be able to sort of offer support for people to help with recovery from mental health difficulties. Yes, I think that's quite an interesting thing about it is in that many of the things that sh shape our mental health, we're limited in our ability to change them. Uh, but loneliness is perhaps something that is uh, modifiable. Um, what do we know about how modifiable it is? Um, uh, you know, what... Are, are there interventions that are proven that we can relieve loneliness? Have they been shown to improve mental health and things like that? Yeah, so I guess kind of most, if not all of us, will experience loneliness at some point in our lives. And for most people, happily, this is a sort of trans transient, transient state of affairs, isn't it, really? We'll feel lonely if 
we move somewhere to a new area or we have a relationship breakup or whatever and then hopefully that moves on so for most people loneliness doesn't need any intervention people will stop being lonely of their own accord but I guess where it people may need some help is where it becomes a kind of uh, more serious and a more long-term thing really if people are kind of long-term lonely then some support can be helpful and I think in the general population we know that loneliness is really very modifiable that there's quite a, a lot of research for instance just with older adults or with younger people looking at a whole range of different types of support which includes psychological help so specially tailored cbt for loneliness for instance or more social interventions about linking people into local sort of groups and resources including things like befriending schemes and some peer support interventions can all be really helpful in reducing loneliness what we know an awful lot less about and the, the area where I'm really interested in what can help with loneliness for people with severe mental health difficulties, people who, for instance, are using specialist mental health services. And we know that there's a big link that you're more likely to be lonely if you've got severe mental health difficulties. But it's not clear whether the same things that help the population in general will necessarily help people who have been really quite ill for quite a long time. And I guess some of the extra challenges that people who with a severe mental health condition may face are they may be starting from a sort of lower base of social connections that really people typically have smaller social networks and less social capital and resources they can draw on. People may face stigma, which I think we might talk a bit more about later, really, and that can make it difficult to sort of form connections. And I guess the nature of people's illness in particular can be difficult, that if you're depressed and you get less joy out of all the activities that you use to like, then it's harder to motivate yourself to go off, make go off and develop new connections. But also people's confidence can be chopped to pieces, really, if, if people have been ill for a long time. So that actually just making that start can make quite a bit of help. And the best ways to do that is stuff we still need to work out. Mm. Uh, in terms of, of stigma, do you feel that that is a modifiable aspect of this? Are there things that we can do to help reduce people's experience of stigma things within mental health professions that we can we, we can address because as we know stigma kind of exists across the spectrum yeah absolutely and and we know that there's a really strong link between stigma and loneliness in populations of people with mental health difficulties and that holds good even when you try and adjust for other factors like severity of illness and so on and i think there are two things going on both of which are potentially ways we can help so people genuinely experience discrimination prejudice a negative response from people if, if people know that people have a mental health difficulty and that's a sort of reality in in parts of society i think that people are aware of but people also will anticipate stigma and then think i'm going to get a bad response so i i can't sort of go there it's not going to work well so that sort of self-stopping behavior can be in some ways even more pernicious really because you don't even give it the chance to find out whether you're gonna gonna have a good experience or not so i think there's a range of ways we can help there in terms of kind of self-stopping and anticipated stigma perhaps some psychological help or some confidence building might be useful to sort of help people take the plunge really and give it a go and then maybe people might be pleasantly surprised that actually people are more accepting than they fear i think in terms of kind of just trying to avoid or get round real stigma and discrimination and prejudice in society partly that's about finding welcoming social groups and communities which you can be part of and, and maybe some help to sort of identify and locate those but also a bit of help with picking yourself up and 
just reiterating that it's not your fault if you do meet a bad response and trying to find the next place that might might be more welcoming. Mm, so helping people finding better ways to process that stuff when it does happen in a particular way. Absolutely. And, and I think just, I mean, one thing I'm really conscious of in our, our society, the kind of first question people ask in a social group is, so what do you do? Which is a hard question to answer if you've been unemployed for a while because you've been really unwell, really. So immediately you're in a difficult social place. And I think this kind of helping people think, how am I going to introduce myself to a group, but also find groups where kind of maybe maybe it's accepted that that's, you know, people are just more more inclusive and welcoming and the kind of two ways of trying to help, I think. Mm. Yes, well, I think the you're know, finding the groups that you can relate to without these sorts of barriers sounds uh, absolutely key and for the groups to exist in the first place that people uh, connect with. Is that... Does that come under this sort of remit of social prescribing? We were talking about sort of, you know, taking a more organised approach to this. Is that a term that covers that kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely, I think. So social prescribing basically is just a, it's quite a broad umbrella term, but it's about support to help people to access services, but also groups and activities in their community, which are going to help meet people's needs with health and well-being, but also with social connection and potentially loneliness as well. And I think it varies quite a lot in terms of how social prescribing services are set up. So some are within GP primary care organisations, some would be run by voluntary sector organisations and a GP might refer people. But they also vary quite a lot in terms of how much support they offer. So some it might be just giving people a list of local resources and saying, check out some of these, see if any of them are good. But others, it might be much more hands on help to sort of help people access them and get there for the first time. And I think it also varies quite a bit in how individualised the support is, again, whether it's just a list of here's what there is locally or whether a social prescriber, a link worker has time to really get to know the person and work out what might be most meaningful and helpful for them and what they what they want and they need. And then finding a resource that meets that. Yes, I, I totally Im imagine that uh, the types of group type of activity one might want to engage with would be hugely variable from one individual to another i think that's exactly right and so it's not the case that there's ever going to be one size fits all or that singing groups are good for people or not good for people you know it, they're going to be really helpful for some people and not for others and so on so I, I think that is the key to it really just and also what people do in the group because if you're going to get some meaningful and sustaining social connection it's you've got to talk to people and feel you belong when you get there as well not just pitch up yes absolutely and so is this something where there's been a lot of co-production and you know service user involvement in shaping the sorts of things that we do yeah absolutely i mean i think it's well it is just seen as good practice in mental health research and, and development generally now but i think in this field it's particularly important to involve people with lived experience in planning both the types of support on offer and the research projects for two reasons. One is that we're, we're still at a really early stage with loneliness support, I think, about what can be most helpful. So really kind of hearing from everybody and, and avoiding some pitfalls of a bunch of academics sitting in a room and coming up with something which feels like a good idea. And then some people with lived experience could have told us that wasn't going to work easily before we try it out. Um, but also, I think the nature of the subject that that 
helping people with social relationships is not a big part of mental health professionals clinical training it's not something where either practitioners or academics hold all the expertise and bringing in that hard-won lived experience knowledge can be really helpful in terms of shaping things so um certainly we've done a lot of, of involvement of people lived experience colleagues in the work we've been I've been doing with colleagues at UCL which we can talk a bit more about but I think in general in social prescribing it's it's generally quite co-produced and needs to be to be as effective as possible yes no, I could totally uh totally see that that's it, it's a very exciting um field as it were I believe there's a couple of studies that you're involved with that uh maybe it'd be quite good if you could tell us a wee bit about it. we're going to hear more about them i guess at the meeting um you've got the community navigator trial and the sushi trial would, would you could you just take us through those quickly in terms of what you're looking at and what's what is the intervention and who it's for and things like that yeah absolutely so the community navigator trial is the biggest single piece of research that i'm involved in at the moment um, and this is kind of a bit further on down the research track, I suppose, in that we've developed this community navigator program and done a previous study where we tested it out and got some feedback from um, people receiving the support and, and the people providing it. And now we're doing a big randomized control trial to try and test out whether it's an effective form of support. Um, and what it is basically is community navigators. are. It is a sort of form of social prescribing, really. It's a kind of high intensity sort of social prescribing for, prescribing for people in secondary mental health services or community mental health teams with long-term depression and related conditions. And a community navigator is not a clinically trained person, or at least not necessarily, but they're people with some expertise in their local community and in helping people with social participation. And they meet people up to 10 times over six months and have a small group element for the people taking part in the project to meet each other. And they'll try and get to know the person and map out with them the people, places and activities that are important to them, perhaps things they used to do and have stopped doing or things they'd like to do in the future. Make some plans, set some goals for what the person would like to do to develop social connections, but then actively help the person to achieve those, which might mean finding out information about something that, that's locally if they don't know or going with someone the first time, perhaps introducing them to some people there to make it all a bit easier. Um, just rationalizing things that don't work out as well as planned and making a new plan to try and sort of try again. I love that. Um, it's, it's like an intervention to get rid of the barriers, to help people over the barriers to participation principally. Is that right? I think that's exactly right. And I think just signposting or referring people to support can go wrong, especially for people who have got the most severe challenges with developing social relationships that people might just not have the confidence to go and get there on their own really and just helping people with that I think can hopefully be the the extra mile that just makes a difference with people. Yes I suppose if, if things don't go well there's potential for harm isn't there and for people to feel more isolated as a result of something doesn't work out. Yeah th th there is although I think kind of a bit of learning that it isn't a disaster and the community navigator can kind of rationalize that for all of us not every social event works well um uh, and if it doesn't well you you try another and, and try and not take it personally as you're failing but but you're right really and i think kind of one important bit of the community navigators program is just to go at the person's own pace 
and work at their goals really and for some people what objectively might look to me like really quite small changes happen could be really meaningful to people and feel that people are on a path and and feel more hopeful about the future mm. well and you've got funding for a randomized trial for that and so congratulations and uh hopefully we'll get some good uh good data from that quite soon when, when do you expect that to be finished yeah so we're in the middle of recruiting participants at the moment and we should hopefully reach our recruitment target middle of next year and sort of summer 2025 is when the study ends and are you doing the randomization by kind of region or uh, how do you uh, do the allocation yeah so we've got six nhs trusts involved in greater london and birmingham and york and we uh, sign people up who want to take part in the study and then people are individually randomized so half of the people in the trial are then randomized to get this community navigator support as well as their usual care and the other half just carry on getting their usual support from the cmht and we follow people up for just over a year to see whether it makes a difference to people at the end of the treatment point at eight months and then again six months after that whether mm. there are any sustained benefits so a couple of years before we find out the scores on the doors on that one but uh uh, congratulations on that project. Best of luck with it. Um, yeah, how, how about the sushi trial? What What's that about? Yeah, so the sushi study, it's not a randomised controlled trial or any sort of experimental study in the same way. And it's at an earlier stage of research. But essentially, we're building on some work that um, I was involved in, but was led by um, Jill Mezzi from St George's University of London about she we developed a measure of social inclusion, which had sort of 46 questions asking people about different areas of their life and their social world about were they included, did they participate in different areas of life? And if not, would they like to do so more? So we get a sense of how included people were and where, where people's priorities were to be more included in the society and the community in which they live. And we developed it initially as a research tool, but what both people with lived experience and practitioners told us was that this could be useful in practice. So the sushi study was about developing an online version of this social inclusion assessment for use in supported accommodation services, supported housing services. Um, so we developed it and got some feedback from practitioners working in the services and from service users, um, refined it, tried it out again. And what we've tried to do is to make it a useful tool for people to use in practice really so once you've done the measure and done the assessment together it generates a list of all the areas where the person said they'd like to be more included about whether that's feeling less lonely getting a relationship getting some more money help going to the dentist registering to vote you know a whole range of different things mm. and prompts the staff member and the person using the living in supported accommodation to choose together up to three things that they're going to prioritize and work on together as goals so we hope that it can be an aid to sort of inform care planning and make sure that people's most important needs are getting met. Um, but also if, if it can be used at scale, it could be a really neat tool to tell us what are the kind of met and unmet needs in services. And just from the little bit of work we did do in the sushi study, we were finding a few things, including interestingly, both feeling less lonely and finding a partner were two things that People living in services were often saying, yes, I'd like some help with that, but they didn't often get prioritised for care. So I think that's a sort of 
a gap in an unmet need at the moment, really, which we're interested to do something about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's it's the most obvious thing is that would be the more, you know, finding a partner. But, you know, it's not mm. traditionally the NHS's job, is it? So um, it's quite a challenge bringing these um, sort of, you know, user-centred objectives into uh, 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 something that you want to align services with. Yeah, it's a different, requires a bit of a change in mindset in services, I think, doesn't it? To think is that something that mental health teams can help with. But we're really interested and we've got a little bit of funding from School for Social Care Research to do some early work on this, just to hear, first of all, from people using services and from staff to hear what do they think does this happen at the moment what are the barriers what types of support would be acceptable and might be helpful and go from there i think mm, mm. no it sounds fascinating so you know it's a something that you could use as an outcome measure that can also help to plan treatment and i guess one if you look at it across populations you then can see trends you might see gaps in local provision where you need to think about planning services Absolutely. And you could see how this might tie in not only with supported housing services, but potentially with social prescribing or something as a sort of good starting point for finding out what people would really like help with. Mm. Mm. Well, that's great. Well, we'll look forward to hearing more about all of this work on uh, the meeting on the 30th of October. So I um, just want to say thanks so much, Bryn, for, for joining us. And uh, that was a really, really interesting uh, insight into your work. Thanks, Douglas. Yeah, enjoyed it. Thank you.